The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jewish authorities then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate, and they died. But the one who eats this bread will live forever. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the Holy Trinity, one God. Amen. Of all of the mainline churches, I think perhaps more than any of them, we are a denomination of converts. I don't know about you, but I've been in a number of uh, gatherings of Episcopalians and someone who is uh, perhaps leading a workshop or a clergy conference might ask the question, how many here are cradle Episcopalians? Now, I don't usually ask you to show hands, but I would this morning like to know how many here are cradle Episcopalians? You were born into the church, just to get a sense of that. Well, it's a pretty good number. I found that in New England, the number of cradle Episcopalians is much higher than in other parts of the country. But generally speaking, our churches are made up of people who were not born into the church, but in fact chose the Episcopal church. Well, because of that, we come with many ideas about the traditions of the church, of what we should do or shouldn't do. And nowhere is that more focused than around the theology and practice having to do with the Holy Eucharist or communion. We come from traditions, some of us, that had communion very seldom. I came out of the Methodist tradition. Uh, for a period of time in our church, we only had communion four times a year. Others come from traditions where people are encouraged to go to Eucharist every day if possible. Some are taught that only if you have arranged ahead of time with the church are you to come forward for communion. They're very particular about making sure that those who come and are a part of those gathered around the altar are those that are indeed members of the church. And usually that means that particular denomination. And even then, having to have some proof that they are true members of that denomination. For example, if you're a, a, a Lutheran who is not Missouri Synod, you can't go to a Missouri Synod Lutheran church and expect to receive communion without arranging ahead of time. So there are a, a wide variety of practices, and our ceremonies and liturgies that surround the Eucharist also differ greatly. 
And sometimes we see clergy at the altar in very uh, elegant vestments, other times very plainly dressed, sometimes with chalices encrusted in jewels, other times with very simple little tiny cups that sometimes are passed down the aisle and people take a piece of bread perfectly squarely cut, as I recall it from my childhood, with grape juice and not wine. And who among us who have been uh, in the church for a long time uh, can forget those little wafers, who knows what they were made of, but they always manage to stick to the roof of your mouth after you receive communion. We come from many different perspectives when it comes to understanding what happens in the celebration of the Eucharist and what it means to share communion together. As an aside, uh, this is an opportunity I seldom have to say a couple of things about our celebration of the Eucharist in the Episcopal Church. I think it's important for you to know that when a priest stands at the altar and is consecrating the elements, it is not the priest who consecrates. It is the gathered community sharing in that consecration prayer, the priest saying the prayer on behalf of the communion. And also, when you see the manual acts of the clergy, those are signs to give you a sense of what's happening in that part of the Eucharistic prayer. There's no magic involved in it, but rather signs of what is going on as we pray together to consecrate the elements, to make them holy. An Episcopal priest can't go off and celebrate the Eucharist by himself or herself. We must always be in community because it's the prayer of the community that consecrates. Well, my own journey uh, to the Episcopal Church is from the Methodist tradition, and it happened in the 60s. You know, those were those times we're celebrating, after all, the 40th anniversary of Woodstock. So you know what that meant. We all had to be rebelling against something, and for me, I guess it was rebelling against the, uh, the tradition of my grandparents, the Methodist Church. So I looked uh, from various traditions to other traditions, and in the course of doing that, I realized that I was a person who was best fed in church uh, in, a, in, a, in a service that had liturgy as a part of it. Not just a meeting where people came together to hear someone speak, but in a liturgy. And that was confirmed most strongly for me when a couple of friends in my dorm who were Episcopalians and active in the local church invited me to come to church with them one morning. So one Sunday morning I was there kneeling as we were praying out of the 1928 prayer book, the priest facing the altar. And in that moment, and I can picture it in my mind now, I knew that I had come home. I had found the place that spoke to me most deeply in worship. Now, in saying that, I do not want in any way to give the impression that other traditions and other forms are not valid or are in some way less. But for me, it was being in that Eucharistic service and in the presence of the mystery of the Eucharist that spoke to me in a way that I had never been touched by God before. And I knew, and in fact I felt, that for the first time I worshipped in a new and a wonderful way. And being in the presence of the mystery was what was a large part of that for me. Well, in a sense, the words that we have in today's gospel are kind of at the heart of that mystery. They're hard for us to understand. 
it's very difficult for us to even imagine how they would have been heard by some, someone in the synagogue in Capernaum, as Jesus may have said something like that to that congregation. And even harder, perhaps, to think about how they might have been heard by people who heard this gospel in John's community as they were dealing with issues uh, having to do with the nature of Christ. At the time of John's writing, there was a real question being raised about not the divinity of Jesus, but his humanity. So I think it helps us a little bit to know that that's in the background of this text. Was Jesus human? And we hear over and over again Jesus talking about his flesh and about his blood. Let me uh, recall some of his words out of this lesson this morning. He says, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And then he goes on, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. One of the things that we can get a hold of a bit about how this might have been heard in the first century is to understand that if we're uncomfortable with those words and if we find them borderline grotesque, we can only imagine how it must have been heard in Capernaum as Jesus was saying them. Eating someone's flesh appears in Scripture only in the context of violence or of threat of violence. Jesus' words also might have uh, caused someone to recall in the Aramaic that eater of flesh was another name for the devil. And as Nick uh, so well said last week, the word for eating in this place is really not a very nice word. It's about gnawing or eating loudly. There's nothing about those images that are particularly attractive. And in addition to that, the drinking of blood was especially grotesque. And scripture in no place except in images of the Eucharist speaks in a positive way about eating flesh and drinking blood. Now, is it any wonder that the first Christians were accused by many of being uh, cannibals and of uh, entering into a human sacrifice? I would guess that the day that Jesus spoke those words in Capernaum, in that synagogue, there were many who were truly offended and probably very angry with him. It's hard for us to understand those words, but as I thought about them and as I read them over and thought about how I might hear them as if Jesus might be speaking those words to me, this is what I find in that text. I hear Jesus saying, it's about flesh and blood. It's about life, your life and mine, connected through all eternity. It's about your life in all its complexities and its imperfections and in its failings. It's about the pain you suffer that I suffer as well. It's about the joy of deep and abiding relationship with you. It's about me willingly giving my life, not just as another scapegoat, but to show the madness of scapegoating, the madness of violence, The madness of sacrifice. Yes, eat my flesh, drink my blood, because it is all given freely for you, that you might have life, that you might be in me and I in you. 
It's about flesh and blood. Jesus would have it no other way. It had to be real. It had to be something that could be touched. It had to be something that would come into our broken lives and heal them. It had to be something real enough that could bring life. His body, his blood. I believe that's part of what Jesus was expressing that day in the synagogue in Capernaum. That isn't just about God caring for us from a distance. It's about God caring for us in the most intimate way possible. It is about God truly present with us. As we gather around this holy table as a community of faith, we are drawn together in a way that is mystical. It would make no sense anywhere else. And we are drawn together around Christ who is at the center. It is the living Christ who is present with us. And we are fed by his body and by his blood. And if you think about his sayings about, uh, you know, I am in you and you are in me. If you think about what you had for breakfast this morning. In very little time, that will become a part of your body, of your living cells. And I think in the same way Jesus is saying, I am a part of you. You now are my flesh. You now are my blood. And so it doesn't end here as we gather around this holy table and share in communion together. But rather we take that life, that life of Christ with us as we go out into the world. And as we sit around our own tables and break bread together, a sign emerges in front of us. A sign of something for us to always remember. That God is with us. That God's goodness is eternal. That God's grace and the abundance of that grace is never ending. We thank God that we worship a God who is willing to give of God's self in such a complete way. Amen.